You're listening to Season 8 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today. This is episode 8.14. This place is best shunned and left uninhabited. And we are your hosts. I'm Tom, Gundam fan, and looking forward to the day we meet a widely reviled Gundam character who shares my name. And I'm Nina, done with Stardust memory. Or am I? Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by our 710 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest patrons, Bobby T., Lakeos Greymoon, and the Zeon Zion similarity makes me a bit uncomfortable as a Jew. That is the whole patron name. There is a lot to unpack there. But for now, we'll just say, you keep us Genki. You know what else keeps us Genki? Returning patrons, positive reviews, postcards and emails. MSB is a full-time job and then some for both of us. And in order to reach our goal of catching up with Gundam, we need your support. If you enjoy this podcast, consider becoming a monthly subscriber. There are a lot of great benefits depending on your tier, including early access to new episodes, a patron-only Discord, bonus content like extra research, silly mobile suit reviews, and extended outtakes, and some very cool merch that is not available anywhere else. For full details and to join today, go to GundamPodcast.com Patreon. This week we return to Stardust Memories finale and episode 13, Kakenukeru Arashi, or A Storm Raging Through. Its original English title was Men of Destiny. In the Japanese title, Arashi means a literal storm, but idiomatically it can also refer to an uproar or the winds of change. Kakenukeru is a verb which means to run through, as a person might run through a crowd. A storm might race across the plains, or a scandal might sweep through a whole government. But it can also mean to overtake someone from behind, and so I read this title as saying that in this episode, the storm of these perilous days finally overtakes these characters. But it does not linger. It rages through space and leaves them changed in its wake. This episode was released on VHS and Laserdisc on September 24th, 1992. The chief director was Imanishi Takashi, who was also the episode director, scriptwriter, and storyboard artist. The animation director was Kawamoto Toshihiro. And now, the recap. In grief and fury, Gato attacks the bridge of Delaza's former flagship, the site of his mentor's execution. But the target of his rage, the traitor Shimangarahau, manages to survive. Their mutual hatred drives them throughout the bloody and ferocious battle as Gato leads those ships loyal to him in an all-out attack on the solar system weapon and the fleet defending it, while, to the surprise of the Albion's crew, Shima's fleet joins them in the weapon's defense. Gato's side is winning, breaking through the Federation defenses and threatening the ship responsible for calibrating the solar system too. They need just 30 more seconds to maximize the weapon's output, 
but Basque decides they cannot afford to wait. He gives the order to fire. The whole battlefield seems to pause as both sides watch the blinding light, the thick smoke engulfing the colony. We can feel their held breaths, their stillness, waiting for the smoke to clear. When it does, the colony is damaged, but not enough. And Gato destroys the control ship, so the Federation will not have another chance. Shima's fleet is left with nowhere safe to run to, and when Cole catches up to her, her agreements with the Federation are no protection. Blaming her for the seemingly pointless deaths of Lieutenant Burning and Kelly Lazner, Cole jams the Unit 3's Mega Beam Cannon into the middle of Shima's Gerbera Tetra and fires. With the main threat to the colony drop eliminated, Gato goes to the colony itself. Alone, Nina steals a core fighter and leaves the Albion, following Gato. He is in the colony's control room, adjusting its course before the final descent to Earth. It seems the target is not, and never was, Jaburo. Confronted with the lover who abandoned her with no explanation, Nina finds that, despite her efforts, she still has feelings for him. At the same time, she spots his handgun on the console and points it at him, arms shaking, willing herself to fire. In the same moment that Gato pulls the lever to complete the course correction, a shot rings out and blood blooms around a bullet hole in Gato's abdomen. But it wasn't Nina who fired, it was Cole. Nina tries to convince the two men to stop, that there's no longer anything to be gained by fighting each other, but when she cannot persuade them, it is Cole she trains her gun on, and Gato who she helps limp away. But Gato knows that he and Nina are not going to live happily ever after. With a murmured, forgive me, he knocks her out, ties her up, and has a trusted ally take her to the Axis flagship. All around the colony, the Axis fleet rushes to retrieve any Dela's fleet survivors they can find, while the Federation sends threatening messages, reminding them that there is a time limit on their presence here. When that time runs out, they will immediately come under attack. Ko's orders are to go back and defend the Albion, but when he emerges from the colony in the Unit 3, Gato is waiting for him. They fight one-on-one, -on -one, a true duel. Cole's experiences in these frantic weeks making him a more equal rival, and nourishing the hatred Gato told him was the spark of every war. Across the field of battle, the Albion is forced to retreat, too badly damaged to go on. Catching Cole's mobile armor with a pincer claw at the end of a long cable, Gato reels him in, his own Noya Zeal pulling the Unit 3 into an inescapable embrace. Basque orders the solar system fired again, even though, without a control ship, its power is greatly diminished. He gives the order even though the orbital fleet vanguard is in the beam's path, and so is the Unit 3. Or perhaps, it's because of those circumstances, and the opportunity to increase his own advantage. He gives the order with a smile. Drowned in light, buffeted by the beam even in its weakened state, Cole passes out. When he wakes, Gato has gone. The mobile armor has taken extensive damage and Cole separates the stamen and leaves the rest of the Unit 3 behind. There is nothing left for him to do but witness the colony's fall. Even after everything he's seen and done, it is shocking. The Axis fleet is out of time. The Federation broadcasts a message encouraging the last of the Delas fleet to surrender, but instead they join Gato in one last charge. One last effort to get to the Axis fleet before it leaves the Earth sphere. Nina pleads with the Admiral to wait just a few more minutes, hoping that Gato will survive and return to her. But that was never his plan. His mission is complete. With a shout, he crashes the Noya Zeal into the bridge of a Federation ship. 
the Admiral gives Nina a choice to go with them into deeper space or stay behind. She chooses to stay in the Earth's sphere. In the days and weeks following Operation Stardust, Basque and his faction reorganized the Federation forces for the protection of Earth and Earth's interests, Earth's power. This is the founding of the Titans. The true target of Operation Stardust was Central North America, a major agricultural center. Shima's former ally, the crooked director of Anaheim Electronics, commits suicide. Cole is court-martialed. He refuses to speak at his trial and is sentenced to one year of imprisonment. The decision is made to destroy all records related to the Gundam development project, and Cole is released early. At a UNT spacey base in the middle of North America, in the shadow of the colony drop wreckage, Cole will be a pilot again. Keith is there, and so are Mora and Nina. After everything they've been through, there is pain and awkwardness, but also happiness. At an interesting mobile suit, at your friends, still alive and well, who knows what the future holds. It is going to be hard for me to talk about this episode. Because as I was watching it, I filled my notes up with all kinds of comments and some criticisms of the way that the episode plays out, which I think are valid. But then I get to the ending and I'm just, I love this ending so much that I'm just wilding out. And all of my criticisms go immediately out of my head. Interesting. Am I to take from that that you did not appreciate the ending? That final scene, which last week you said you really wanted? There were parts of that last scene that I quite liked and thought were great. Uh, and there were parts of it that, I don't know. Uh, it was very powerful in this last episode to have Cole state what we have been saying seems like one of the themes of the show. What was the point of all this? Why did all of these people have to die? And he doesn't even just mean his own side. You know, he mentions burning. He also mentions Kelly. And he liked and respected Kelly, but Kelly was also fighting for the enemy. The additional scene that is added to this ending, compared to the ending from the film, seems to basically say, Shrug, oh well, yeah, all that death and destruction and war feels pointless, but what are you gonna do? I mean, I think that is the message of the show. Which is extremely cynical. Yes. And sad to me, personally. I find it sad. I think you can also read some hope into it. It's, I see that face you're making. <laughs> they, the listeners can't see that face, but I can see that face. Big picture, extremely nihilistic story, but it has to be because we already know where the universal century is going to go for at least the next 50 years or so. We know that in the big picture, no one learns anything. Nothing ever gets better. It just continues on like this until F91 and then whatever happens after that but it is hopeful in a small way for these individual people. Because so much of this show, so much of this story has been about being trapped on the trajectory set for you by the events of the past, about recriminations, self-loathing, revenge, and the way this cycles around again. Everyone letting the course of the rest of their lives be dictated by the worst thing that ever happened to them. Always coming back to hate and pain and violence. And at the end, in this last scene, 
we see this brief moment when Cole sees Nina and Nina sees Cole, and you can see pass across her face in her eyes this moment when all the pain, all the guilt, it all comes flooding back to her, and then she buries it or lets it go, and she smiles. And there's a moment there of letting the past go and seeking the unknown future, which could be beautiful, it could be joyous, it could be heartbreaking, but we don't know. And the past can only ever offer us some evidence, only ever offer some guidance. It doesn't determine the future. Sure, but a kind of pig-headed insistence on not dealing with the past, on not examining or considering or contending with or even thinking about the past is not helpful either. But we don't know that that's what they're going to do. We don't know that they're going to never speak of things and pretend that it didn't happen. All we know is that at the end, both of them seem like they're willing to give the future a chance to be different. And under these circumstances, I think maybe that's the best anyone could hope for. You pointed out that sense of inevitability, of being sort of caught up in the tides of history, uh, small, small twigs in a raging river. You can't stop a raging river with a single twig, no matter how hard you throw it. But if you can get enough twigs to stick together, you can build a dam. Call that the beaver theory of change. Here at the end, our main twig winds up back where he started. He returns to a Federation military base. He's got his test pilot helmet with him, so presumably he's going to be a test pilot again. This base is also nestled among the wreckage of the colony drop, mm -hmm. just as Torrington was. It's not just Ko who returns to where he was in the beginning. The storm has raged through and passed on, leaving everyone where they began. Keith is there, also piloting an enemy mobile suit that's been captured. God, the irony of this big mobile suit flashing him a peace sign as he walked by. I thought that was fantastic. It's I real thought good. that was so good. Worth pointing out that the mobile suit Keith is piloting is a Gelgoog Marine which were primarily and perhaps exclusively used by Shima's fleet. So this is a recently captured enemy machine. Everyone has come full circle. Keith is piloting. Nina has clearly gotten some kind of job with the Federal Forces, testing these machines. Mora is there with her. So much of this ending has been about circling back around to where everyone was at the start. And ultimately making the point that all of Gato's fighting for ideals didn't matter. In the great scheme of things, it did not make a difference. He comforts himself by saying, you know, now that we've done this, other people will follow us. And when they make that suicidal final charge against the Federation fleet, instead of surrendering, he says, we only need one of you to make it through. If even one of you makes it through, then tell the future about what happened here today. But we know that this whole thing gets buried and that the Federation uses the events of the Delaz fleet uprising to create the Titans and strengthen its hold on space. The Federation is so big, so powerful, so inevitable, really, that it has the capacity to absorb even these attacks, even the most radical actions against it. It can absorb them and turn them into its own strength. Yeah, there's every indication during the episode that Basque thought that they would manage to stop the colony. But he is perfectly willing and able to turn their failure to his advantage. One thing about the ending really raised a lot of questions for me. There's the voiceover of Basque's speech. And during that voiceover, 
is the montage of the crew of the Albion wearing their shiny new Titans uniforms, the Titans mobile suits, the pilots in Titans uniforms, a new captain coming mm-hmm. aboard the Albion who we only see the back of his head, so I can't identify who it is, but someone with longish gray hair. We only see the back of his head, and so I'm able to identify who he is because <laughs> of his longish gray hair and Titan's uniform. There was one Titan's captain in Zeta who had that haircut. He is, unfortunately, one of the ones who doesn't get a name. He looks like, but is not, Federation Captain Ted Ayachi. His last appearance, as far as I'm aware, was in Zeta Gundam episode 45, the uh, Gate of Zidan episode. As far as I can remember, he does not die on screen. So his ship, on which all of these former Albion crew members are serving, may very well have survived, and they may have survived the events of Zeta as well, although who can say? Of course you know all of that. I suspected. I was setting you up to show (laughs) off. Thank you. You're a good podcasting partner. The question raised by all of this is, what is our time scale on this montage? Presumably it's all happening within that year that Cole spends in jail, or less than a year, actually, because presumably they let him out before his sentence was up once they've deleted all those documents. (laughs) Basque says in his speech that at the time he's giving the speech, it's been three days since the attack, I believe is what he says. Presumably the montage happens over a longer period of time, but how long? How quickly did they get those Titans uniforms made up? Well, did they have them already? Was all of this ready to go before Operation Stardust even happened? Were they just waiting for an opportunity to bring all of this out? Is the thing I started wondering, like, oh, how much of this was ready to go? and just waiting for the right moment. Well, we know that there are these two factions within the Federation. There's Cowan, who has this Gundam development project, and then there's Jamatov, Basque, Gene Collini, etc. So while Cowan was developing Gundams, they were developing Titans uniforms, I guess. And these new gyms, the Jim Quell, it really is suspiciously fast. And I'm inclined to agree with you that they all had it all planned out in advance. Although Gundam does often have things happen unbelievably fast. Mobile suit development, for instance. A couple other little things about Basque and the Federation while all of this is happening. I wasn't entirely sure what to make of Synapse's line to Basque that he was behaving as though they were in a military dictatorship. It's like, well, he's giving you orders. Isn't that normally what happens? <laughs> How is this different? Right. Yeah. So this this is actually one of the biggest problems with this episode, because it seems like Synapse and the Albion object to Shima's fleet helping to defend the solar system. Right. And Cole objects to this very strongly. This is what spurs his line about what about burning and Kelly? Did they die for nothing? And if this was a case of the Federation using its forces to try to achieve Shima's objectives, then their lines would make a lot of sense. But in this case, Shima's forces are helping the Federation to do the thing that Cole and Synapse and the whole crew of the Albion are trying to do, which is to stop the colony. So any interference that they make with Shima's fleet is actually helping Delaz drop the colony. And a bunch of that time that Cole is running around fighting either Shima or looking for Gato or fighting Gato, uh, 
he was not defending the Albion, and the Albion ends up retreating from the field too badly damaged to keep fighting. Well, and it's while he's fighting Shima that Gato is off destroying the control ship for the solar system. So if Ko had gone after Gato instead of killing someone who is, at least at that moment, his nominal ally, maybe things would have turned out differently. And the Albion does say that they don't think he can catch Gato, but he does eventually. Yeah, he doesn't even try. Yeah. I wondered when I watched the movie whether Basque's first order to fire the solar system, whether he wanted it to not work, whether that was on purpose, but uh, at least as it's presented in this episode, I don't believe so. Mm -hmm. I believe he felt that they could not afford to wait any longer, and he made the executive decision to fire early, even though they were not entirely ready to fire the weapon. The second time, however, he looks pleased that they are going to have to fire through their own vanguard, which made me wonder if the vanguard ships are associated with this other faction within the Federation, and he is just thinking to himself, ah, I can get rid of all these people who are allied against me and have some more martyrs to talk up when I'm like, all right, I've figured out how to spin this. I think there's a good chance of that. It seems like he is probably taking out some inconvenient political rivals. We also remember from Zeta that he just likes hurting people. He is a vicious, sadistic thug, and he likes to destroy things. Speaking of which, when the colony breaks through the solar system, when the control ship explodes and they lose the focus on the mirrors and the colony just busts through it, Gato experiences one singular moment of joy. There is the briefest second when his face relaxes before the rage comes back and possesses him again. And you can see here a glimpse of his possible future if he had managed to survive. And you realize that no victory, no expiating bloodshed is ever going to be enough for him. He's just gonna kill until he dies. That's all he's got left at this point. He also clearly doesn't want to survive. He's been hinting at it all along, but it becomes increasingly clear in these final episodes. Gato does not want to survive Operation Stardust. He doesn't want to go on anymore. And it's hard to imagine what he would do if he did survive. Just go slowly to pieces, I guess. When the solar system first fires, there's a series of cuts to various characters' faces and their reactions to the firing that was really great. Also, just the way the explosions were animated, the plumes of smoke coming off until it all kind of forms into one big mass, the light, the shadows. It was very well animated. The scene where Cowan looks up and he watches the colony break through the clouds passing overhead is Oof. one of the most beautiful scenes, I think, in all of Gundam. I suppose we should wade into talking about Cole and Gato and Nina. The not exactly climactic scene, but the final confrontation. Almost every Gundam series does one of these, where everybody gets out of their mobile suits and they go into either an asteroid base or a derelict colony in order to have a sort of final philosophical clash before going back out into space and having their big robot punch up. In First Gundam, it was an asteroid base. In Zeta, it was a derelict colony. In Double Zeta, it was a derelict colony inside an asteroid base. Uh, 
it just continues like that. This is a scene that really does an enormous amount of damage to Nina's popularity as a character. One of the first things anyone will tell you about 0083 is how much they hate Nina Purpleton. And it basically all comes down to this one scene. While I agree that by the time the show resolves, I really dislike her, most of why is, I think, reflected in reasons why I also dislike Cole and Gato. I dislike them as people for a lot of the same reasons. It's all a little bit confused and confusing, but it sounds like Gato basically ghosted her years ago. That he didn't break up with her, he just disappeared one day. Which, if you had been in a fairly long-term relationship with someone, would be extremely jarring and upsetting. Uh, and probably make it kind of hard to move on, because you don't know what happened to them. They just up and disappeared one day, and the next you heard, they were part of this uh, rebel fleet or whatever. And so clearly, she was not over Gato. And frankly, by the end of this scene, I don't think she was particularly in love with Cole. She liked Cole, she liked that he flirted with her and they had fun together, and she, she could see a future for the two of them, but she was not in love with him yet. Them's the breaks. And that she ends up kind of embodying that ethos of like, oh, well, why you fight and your ideals and all the philosophical stuff actually doesn't matter. That is kind of the position the movie takes, and it ends up being her position explicitly, because no matter how many times Cole brings up what Gato has done, she doesn't care. No. That is not what this is about for her. Ultimately, she is extremely selfish. For her, this is about the love she feels, her desire for a relationship, her desire for a partner. That is what matters to her, not all the rest of it. And while this is a very extreme expression of it, we have seen hints of this characterization in her throughout the show. Every time she's like, I just build Gundams. I don't know what they're for. I, I didn't think they were going to be used for fighting. Like, that's the same attitude. It's very selfish. It's very myopic. It's very narrow-minded. And despite the fact that she feels she is in love with these two men, she doesn't actually understand either of them much at all. And it doesn't really seem like she's trying to. When she goes to stop Gato, which, quick side note, her stealing that core fighter and flying it off really chaotically <laughs> was done in a way that was very silly and could have been quite funny. My issue with it is not that you can't have a funny moment in the middle of something more serious. Often that makes it even funnier. It can help break the tension or give you like some pathos in the midst of some really intense scenes, but they don't pull it off. I didn't laugh out loud. I didn't feel any sense of relief. It just felt kind of jarring. Although I did appreciate that Keith immediately is like, oh no, I have to go with her. And he gets pinned down and he can't, but he sees that she's going and thinks, I'm going to go keep an eye on her. Sasuga Keith. Sasuga Keith. I laughed. It worked for me. That said, this is another thing that brings us back to the beginning. This is like when Nina takes the Jeep and goes off driving at unsafe speeds to pursue Ko and company while they're trying to pursue Gato. Yep, it's all circular. All this has happened before and all this will happen again. Everybody moves forward, but nothing changes. Coming back to this idea that she does not understand these men, though. 
she busts in and says to Gato, the colony is already going to hit Earth. It doesn't have to hit Jaburo. Why she cares so much about Jaburo, I don't know. And he comments to her, you will never understand. Because she has missed the point completely of all of this. She hasn't understood what it's all for or why they're doing it. And that's part of why her insistence that everything's a foregone conclusion now, there's no reason to keep fighting, doesn't work with these two men. They were never fighting to achieve anything, and they're still not. With the way the show has constructed the different roles of men and women, Nina's obliviousness here could maybe be a battle of the sexes kind of thing, where Nina, being a woman, loves the men, but can never truly understand their masculine motivations. On the other hand, though, Nina has been shown to be almost uniquely oblivious about other people's feelings. Lucette probably could have figured all of this out with a single glance. As for what Nina actually wants in this scene, I don't think she cares about Jaburo. I think she just wants him to leave now. The fighting is over, you can go. You don't have to die. You don't have to risk your life anymore. Just let what's going to happen, happen. God, and the pitiful, I had to stand back and watch you two fight and wonder if you were going to kill each other. Like, that is all she has cared about in the midst of everything that's happening. Just truly stunning selfishness. And feels so different from last episode in that beautiful moment when Synapse tells her to leave and she volunteers to stay despite the risks to try to stop the colony. And I do think it's crucial to remember that by the time this scene happens, they are past the point of no return. There is no meaningful chance of preventing the colony from hitting Earth. We could imagine a story where Ko tries to minimize the harm by redirecting the colony into the ocean or something, but that's not actually the story we watched. And after seeing this whole scene play out, Gato realizes that Nina's still in love with him. And he knows full well they are not riding off into the sunset together. Her desperate pleas that the Axis fleet not run, that they wait just five more minutes, that they hold out a little longer, seems to indicate that had Gato managed to get out of there alive, she would have just gone with him. In the same way that she tells Cole, let's leave the war behind and I would go to Earth with you. She'll go all the way to Axis with Gato if he will leave the fight behind. But he won't, and he knows that, and he doesn't want her to die in it, but he's not going to run away, which is why he knocks her out and sends her trust up to the Axis fleet. But then she doesn't stay with the Axis fleet. She chooses to stay in the Earth sphere. We don't know if she goes straight to Earth or if she goes to the moon first or what exactly she does in that intervening time. Once again, a gray-haired captain offers her the chance to leave the ship and this time she takes it. Also that her like crying curled up on the floor of the bridge is this repeating theme every time the two Gundams fight. The first time during the theft, she has that moment, my Gundams, and she like falls to the ground totally in pieces. The big fight between Kongato that destroys the unit one and unit two, same thing. And then here again, they are dueling again. <laughs> Or I guess they're, they're done dueling at this point, but a similar kind of thing. She's waiting to find out what's happened to them and is just a wreck on the bridge of a ship. But her choice to stay behind just reiterates again. She chose Gato not because she agrees with what he's done on some level 
or wants to be allied with the Axis fleet or anything like that. She was just more in love with Gato, but once it was clear that he was dead, no, she's not going to fly off to the hinterlands with the Axis fleet into what is effectively an exile. She's going to stay where she has connections and can continue to work. She just wants a boyfriend and to be far away from the consequences of her actions. She would like a career building war machines, but no actual war, please. During that scene in the colony control room, Gato says, maybe you, and he's talking to Nina, maybe you are the true witness to Operation Stardust. Which goes back to that idea of Nina being the point of view for all of these events. And there have been hints that this was something that they were trying to do at a couple of moments. I mean, we saw in the movie that they use her as the primary narrator. Episode four, the Africa episode, opens with her giving a narration of what's happened. So I think on some level she was meant to be the witness to all of this. And what does it say about her and by extension us as the audience? All of us just really into those mobile suits without thinking too hard about what they are actually for. And sure, Gato may be a mass murdering terrorist, but he's so stoic and cool. And it's fun to draw cat ears on him and call him our little meow meow. It's funny, the duel at the end of this, when Ko emerges from the colony and finds Gato waiting for him so that they can fight, feels so ludicrous. It's so pointless. But also, because it's pointless, why not, right? Like, what difference can it make? If these two hate each other that much and really want to fight to the death, go to town. Who cares? These are two people who have decided they have nothing to live for. They are also two fighters who, oddly enough, seem to respect each other. Because I don't think Gato would have waited for Cole in that way. And then, after Cole got knocked out when the solar system fired on them, didn't finish him off, like left him there. Because Gato wanted a head-to-head, one-on-one duel between warriors. And that's what they did until they couldn't anymore. And then he goes off to do other things. <laughs> but <laughs> but it wasn't just about killing Cole. It was about killing Cole under the right circumstances. There's that moment when all of the little like sub-arms come out of the Noyazil and he clings to, he embraces the Unit 3, and you almost think that they're going to die together like that. Even before the embrace, and the embrace was a very powerful moment, but there's a point at which uh, Gato sends out one of those little grabber hands at the end of a cable, and the two of them are spinning at opposite ends of this cable through space, and it's so obviously meant to be the thread of fate that connects these two men, and that is like, flinging them through the universe that they do not control. And then during the fight itself, everything about them is like two sides of one coin or mirror images. Their yells as they fight, their faces and the way their faces are lit and colored, they are treated as being functionally the same. They just happen to have wound up in these circumstances that put them on opposite sides. And Gato even comments on that himself, like, oh, if you hadn't happened to be working in the Federation, you would have been spared all this heartbreak. And then, you know, dies doing a literal kamikaze attack. He crashes into the bridge of a ship with his fighter jet, basically. 
in an effort to clear a path through the line so more of his men can make it to the Axis fleet and to safety. And that's it. That is our series wrap on Anna Velgato. Imanishi, the director and writer who is essentially the like the core creator of 0083, said in an interview that he felt 0080 had captured the essence of Zeon as a stand-in for Germany in World War II. But in his view, and again, this is the guy who, who did all of this, in 0083, Zeon represents Japan in the Pacific War. It captures the spirit and the mentality of Japan in World War II. That makes a lot of sense to me. And that Gato himself is crafted specifically to represent a Japanese mindset. He says at one point that Gato is like a Japanese salaryman. I was thinking about that actually, as I was thinking about the line that the captain of the Axis fleet has. He doesn't quite make Nina watch the colony fall, but he tells her, look, and she looks up. She looks kind of horrified, shocked, surprised. I don't know what she thought was gonna happen. She knew the colony was falling. I suppose if you'd never seen one before, it would still be very shocking. But he says, it is the light of these men's souls. And what poetic nonsense, right? It's this need to justify the amount of death, this need to come up with reasons why it mattered, why all these men sacrificing themselves for this mission was actually meaningful and good. And the more I thought about it, the more it did make me think a little bit about that like enshrinement of dead soldiers and that desire to justify the carnage, basically. To sanctify it, to make this a holy war. Because if you believe that your cause is sacred, then you can justify anything. And because it is much harder to instead contend with the feeling that what you were fighting for was empty or false. That is so much harder to deal with than well, we were fighting for what is holy and good, but we were defeated. In a way, the comments made by Gato about, oh, if you weren't part of that rotten federation, none of this would have ever happened to you. Or the captain talking about the light of these men's souls. Or this idea of, like, not having a plan, not trying to make a better world, but just trying to punch the federation right in the nose, lash out at Earth. It comes from this feeling of resentment against an unjust, oppressive world that they all live in. And so they've constructed from this the idea that the Federation itself is like pure evil, and anything they do against it is therefore good. But in this, I think they have misunderstood that the Federation itself, the government, is merely a symptom of the world system that they all live in. And unless you can fundamentally change the world, you're always going to end up with something like the Federation running the show. Would the Principality of Zeon under the Zobbies have been better or even meaningfully different if they had won the One Year War instead of losing it? All of the same big pressures that shape the Federation's policies would be unchanged. Just because you change the people at the top doesn't change anything. You might change which group of people gets to wear the boot and which one gets stomped by it, but the boot-face relationship is not going to be perturbed. And even then, the Spacenoid-Earthnoid division has never been as meaningful as people make it sound. Ever since First Gundam, we have seen the same hierarchies of exploitation on the Earth, on the Moon, and in the colonies. Double Zeta showed us in really explicit terms how the interests and even the policies of the elites align, no matter what side they're on. 
and Gato? If he had been born anywhere other than Side 3, he would probably be a decorated Federation officer, honorably doing his duty. Maybe he would be leading a mobile suit test team in Australia, while Lieutenant South Burning, the werewolf of a Bawaku, joins up with the Delaz fleet. There was some discussion in our patron discord about the ending, about seeing all of these characters who, even if we don't know them very well, we've grown somewhat fond of, we've seen them throughout the series, all of them donning Titans uniforms when we know what we know about the Titans. And uh, we had sort of anticipated that the show was going to make more explicit how these events helped create the rise of the Titans or helped the Titans rise. So it wasn't all that shocking for me, but it does illustrate a couple of different points. One, what we've already seen in the show, which is that most of these people are just muddling along. (laughs) They're not going to make drastic changes to their life. They're not heroes out of storybooks. They're normal people working a job, and they're going to keep doing that. But more closely related to why I wasn't necessarily shocked is that it's quite a good illustration of how fascism takes power. Because it's not always one big power grab in a, you know, intense, dangerous event. It's often gradual. It often starts with steps that seem very rational and well thought out to the people involved. I don't think any of those people putting on those uniforms have really an inkling or have even thought about what the Titans will become. They see it as, you know, as Basque says in his speech, oh, the Federation was naive. They thought we would be at peace forever. Never mind that that's nonsense. They were developing weapons. Of course they didn't think they'd be at peace forever, but I digress. Those weapons were not for use in war. It says so right on the label. They see Basque's more proactive attitude toward addressing threats in the Earth sphere as a sensible move to combat the kinds of attacks that just happened. It all feels small enough and very reasonable to them. I don't know how many of them are Earthnoids, and if any of them are Spacenoids, that's information I don't have. It's possible that if any of them were, they would think a little more carefully about what Basque is saying about cracking down on the colonies and on people living in space. They might, you know, put a little antenna up like, oh, I don't like the way that shift of the wind feels. But for Earthnoids, it is well illustrated throughout the series that Earthnoids have no idea what life in space is like Mm -hmm. (laughs) for people who live there. And vice versa, really. And don't seem to think much about it or care much either. Yeah, that scene of Keith being like, I had no idea colonies were so big, is a nice counterpoint to First Gundam when Rambarol's Zanzibar flies through a, uh, a thunderstorm and all the Xeon soldiers are terrified by the Federation's new weapon. You have left out in this dichotomy, Earthnoid, Spacenoid, that third category, the Lunarians. Not Earthnoid, not Spacenoid, but a not-at-all-secret third thing. <laughs> I don't know that anybody who watches Zeta ever says, gosh, I wish I knew what specific event led to the foundation of the Titans, because they seem like such a natural outgrowth of the way the Earth Sphere and the Earth Federation function. So while Cowan looks up and he sees the colony go overhead and he says, 
with this blow, history is changed, I think it's much more likely that something like the Titans was always going to happen. Some event would have triggered it sooner or later. My theory that they had already prepped things like uniforms and mobile suits certainly plays into that. Basque was just waiting for his moment or would have created a moment. I would absolutely not put it past Basque to purposefully cause a crisis in order to have an excuse to create the Titans. Maybe the attack on the Naval Review would have been enough. And consider for a moment how different the optics of all this might have been, how how different the emotional tone. If the Albion and the Pursuit fleet had known from the beginning that, okay guys, so we hope to stop the colony before it reaches the point of no return. If it doesn't, our backup plan is this extremely difficult to calibrate and set up system that should be effective, but because of the difficulty of actually using it, we really need to stall as much as possible. Ideally, we will deal with the colony before it reaches that point. If it reaches the point of no return and we haven't stopped it, your mission is to defend the solar system weapon with everything you have, because that is our final, final backup plan. If this had all been communicated, if it was known, if it was a system-wide plan, then you don't have Cole going, what was this all for? Oh, like, I mean, that's a, it's a different federation, right? That is a federation <laughs> that does not exist. But it is funny to think about how, without changing much functionally in terms of what happens, just by changing what's communicated and how, <laughs> you wind up with a completely different story. Knowledge is power. As promised, we are finally sitting down to discuss some of the mobile suits in this series. Long overdue, we know. I think we've been promising a discussion of the Dendrobium next time for like five episodes now. And this will combine our own thoughts on the designs and the mobile suits in the story, as well as what we think the flower names I discussed last week might represent and how they connect to the role of these mobile suits in Stardust memory. Given the names of some of these mobile suits, we are naturally going to be talking a bit about the reproductive organs of plants and people. If you're listening in a situation where hearing us talk about anatomy would be inconvenient, you may want to slip on a pair of headphones or just save this one for later. But we're already overdue, so let's get into it. And the series very helpfully numbers them for us. So let's begin with the Unit 1, the GPO-1, the Zephyranthes. Which remains the Zephyranthes even in its upgraded full Bernurn variation. Um, for both the Zephyranthes and the Physalis, the flower meanings that you identified last week don't really leave a lot for us to discuss. The Zephyranthes represents cause pure innocent, lily-white love. Mm, what I like about the Zephyranthes case is it feels as though a bunch of the different layers of meaning could apply, and I don't know if that was intentional, but that idea of the Zephyr, of the West Wind, as bringing news, as being a messenger, and the arrival of the GPO-1 changes everything. The story of Zephyrus's unrequited love and what we know now about Nina's feelings for Cole and for Gato. 
that purity, uprightness, straightforwardness. There is no slyness to Cole, especially early in the series. I think he becomes a little more tricky as time goes on, though not much. He's a very straightforward person. He's so straightforward that in those first couple of episodes, Keith has to do all of the uh, trickery on his behalf. Ko just wants to walk in there and say, can I see your Gundams? And it's either very clever or a very interesting coincidence that Ko does not kiss Nina until this representation of chaste love is destroyed. That conversation that they have where she offers to go to Earth with him if he will leave the fighting, and he refuses, and they're just kind of in a stalemate, but they're both very upset, and he kisses her, that is after the fight in which both the Unit 1 and Unit 2 have been destroyed. I do think there's something more to be said about the upgrade to the full Bernurn version, um, which we'll need to come back to when we get to the Dendrobium. Suffice it to say that in the moment, this represents Cole himself personally evolving, but not a meaningful change in his feelings toward Nina. It's still that pure expression of very innocent, chaste love. And there may even be some significance to the, the color. You were saying Zephyranthes are usually white. That's part of why they represent this innocence. This particular kind that I think they are likely to be referring to, this kind that has a Japanese name, Tamasudare, and that is quite popular in Japan and popularly depicted. And the Unit 1, being a Gundam, predominantly is white. A quick aside, in case anybody was wondering why I got into the uh, Chinese herbal medicine aspect of things, when for the most part, I don't actually think it <laughs> becomes relevant uh, to these mobile suits, is because from the little bit I know about Chinese medicine, uh, I knew that certain ingredients are associated with yin and others with yang, cold and hot, dark and light, feminine and masculine, which I know is an oversimplification, but you get the idea. And it's not an area I've researched extensively. And so I thought some of these plants might either have counter associations, one side light, one side dark, one side masculine, one side feminine, or represent an evolution from like a more feminine energy to a more masculine one. That's not really how it panned out. <laughs> um, so interesting information, but not information that I'm actually going to tie to the mobile suits, really. The Physalis representing deceit, secret love affairs, not a particularly complicated metaphor. Now that we know about the background between Gato and Nina, he steals the unit too. He steals it from his former lover and does so in disguise. And if we view these Gundams as like Nina's children, the Unit 2 is the, the child of this secret affair, which ultimately reveals it to the world in the course of time. But this is another one that has layers to it. Physalis are the ones that are like tomatillos or gooseberries. There's that papery outer covering around a fruit in the middle which immediately brought to mind the uh, launcher and the nuclear missile. Are you comparing the nuclear missile to a delicious gooseberry? Yes, in this case I am. And it's an explosion of flavor in your mouth. Ugh. Uh, and finally, those obon connotations, the connection with these lanterns that are meant to guide the spirits of the dead home. 
And that is more or less how Gato sees himself, that he is guiding the ghosts of Zeon back to the sites of some of their most important battles, but to win this time. And with a great light. That is the visual they use to represent the nuclear bomb, is this massive glow like a lantern, drawing all of the ghosts back into the Sea of Solomon to feed. And he and the other soldiers are constantly referencing the ghosts of their comrades. Plus, I think it's fairly accurate to call the Delas fleet, to call these uh, scattered remnants brought together for one final, everyone admits uh, suicidal attack, the ghost of Zeon as a movement. This little zombie version that just refused to die at the end of the war. Especially in that last episode when they make that final charge on the Federation fleet with Gato at the head. He is the lantern that leads these lost souls through space, leads them back to their home, the battlefield. And for both of these mobile suits, in terms of the visual design, neither were suits that I looked at and immediately went, oh my gosh, I love that. But I'm very interested in their faces. There are times when they are uh, lit up in a certain way that I think they look like the very stern, frowning warrior makeup that you see on a lot of kabuki performers in those kinds of roles. And that also happens to Cole and Gato's faces when their faces are lit up in this particular way with the very stark lighting that creates very bright highlights and very black shadows and very sharp distinction between the two. Their faces become like masks more than like faces. People will sometimes meme on just how distorted Ko and Gato's faces get towards the end of the series, depending on who's drawing them. But it happens consistently enough that it feels like it has to be intentional. I mean, I've seen sets of photos taken of soldiers before going off to the war and then after they've been there for six months or however long after a tour of duty. And you can see uh, a massive change in the face of a person who's been in combat. And so it's only natural that the same thing would happen to Ko and Gato, especially in a series that is so interested in the real world military and that tries so hard to depict things in a realistic way. I suppose the distortion never stood out to me as odd, mainly because it's most evident at the moments of highest emotion. And then it feels like it's meant to convey how the intensity of what they're feeling distorts their features. The way they look when they're calm and relatively happy (laughs) is not the way they look when they're in the middle of fighting each other to the death. Uh, And that feels natural, like that's as it should be. And given the tension of those last few episodes, it's no real surprise that Ko is just like serious all the time. Even when he's not in battle, he's not his like old smiley self because of course he isn't. He has lost that childish, naive curiosity and wonder. He's been infected by that hatred that Gato talked about. We've already talked about how the last episode, the very final scene, is a return to the state of things at the beginning. But compare the way Ko appears, and you'll notice that that final scene has been shot in such a way they've used camera angles that emphasize Ko's like size, their low angles facing upwards, or close-in shots where he fills most of the frame. He looks larger, broader, much more mature than he does in those first few episodes, even though it's only been like six months. A point in favor of your 
more hopeful interpretation of that ending. Throughout these last couple episodes, he's looked considerably more stern. His sort of resting face previously was usually quite relaxed and happy looking. As he has had to fight in very difficult conditions, it's become more and more serious, strained. It continues in that mode in this last scene until a little bit after he sees Keith's mobile suit walk by. At first, he looks mostly surprised, and he's just staring, kind of open-mouthed. But then he breaks into a smile, which I interpreted as him somehow still finding that kernel of fascination and love that he had at the beginning, that he has always loved mobile suits. He's just interested in the technology even after everything he's been through, even after it's become less of a technological abstraction and more of an instrument of war and violence, he is still capable of feeling that sense of wonder, admiration, curiosity that he had before. Even for a Gelgook Marine, even for the kind of mobile suit that he watched kill his mentor, even for a mobile suit that he has personally fought, in this context, he can see it and be like, wow, cool robot. Remember this, listeners, because we'll be coming back to it when we get to the dendrobium. Going to that sense of Cole getting increasingly serious and desperate as the series goes on, I was reading an interview recently with Imanishi, with the director, and you know that scene where he gives himself the injection? Mm-hmm. It's a famous scene. Fans in the English-speaking fandom, at least that I've interacted with, take it in stride, like, oh, cool that they included this like detail that is from real military use of amphetamines. What a neat and realistic detail for them to include. It's so gritty that he would be taking drugs to be able to keep fighting, you know. A lot of that, like, appreciation for the sense of realism and seriousness. And it had never occurred to me until I read this interview that that scene hits very differently to a Japanese audience. Uh, Because as Imanishi says in this interview, there's such an intense stigma against drug use of basically any kind. He called it a scene that could only have been done on a direct-to-video release, and still, he intentionally made that scene ambiguous as to what Ko is injecting, so that if you want to, you could believe it's just like a nutrient injection. Which is vitamins. Exactly. Yeah, well, and a quick aside, when Tom says there is this stigma about drugs, the penalties are extremely harsh. And some of that resistance to drug use is not even just things we think of as recreational or illegal drugs. There's a lot of medications that in the United States we think of as over-the-counter that you cannot get in Japan uh, and that doctors are even reluctant to prescribe. So generally within Japanese society, there's a lot less drug usage of drugs of all kinds, including stuff that we think of as innocuous. There have been a huge number of celebrities whose careers have been completely destroyed because of what we would consider to be a very minor drug charge. Um, I can think of one example that came up when I was researching idol culture for a prior episode. There was a really famous idol who, if I remember the details of the case correctly, her husband was caught with a small amount of cocaine and it turned into like a media firestorm that annihilated her career. The historicity of it, the fact that they did give amphetamines to a lot of their own pilots, would not really be a point in its favor. (laughs) 
So what is a strong scene, even to us, uh, hits with so much more force. But different force also. We see it as an expression of how long he has been fighting and how intensely and just how outnumbered and under-resourced they are that he has to keep fighting and so has to do this in order to be able to continue. Uh, to a Japanese audience, it might speak even more to that loss of innocence, that sense that he is no longer the sweet young man that he was at the beginning of the series. And that he will do anything to win. Almost more interesting than the specific symbolism of these two names being applied to these mobile suits is the fact that it wasn't done at the beginning of the series. There's a lot of evidence to make us think that those names were not added until around episode 7 or the gap between episode 7 and 8. Um, this is also, by the way, episode 7 is the last episode that original director Kase Mitsuko is credited on, so it does feel like they got halfway through the series and then there was a, a big realignment as Imanishi, who had always been there but working more in the background, stepped to the fore uh, and the rest of the series was laid out at that time. It's a neat demonstration of something that happens, I think, in every story. You don't know everything when you start writing. You find the story as you write, and uh, if you're releasing things before you have finished writing everything, then it's natural that you're going to wind up in these situations where you have to sort of pretend that something was, was always the case. And I imagine that happens way more often than we would ever realize. It's only here where we're watching very closely and cross-referencing with a bunch of other information that we can identify this inflection point. Another piece of evidence pointing to this is that all of the design drawings for the Dendrobium, the Unit 3, the Orcus, and the Noyazil, those are all from the same period, from around December 91, January 92. Before we get into the role of the Dendrobium in the story, I don't think I ever really addressed what I thought of the design. I don't like it. I mean, it it seems very functional. It looks like a weapon, <laughs> but that's not terribly interesting to me in terms of aesthetics. It's very boxy, lots of sharp edges and odd shapes. And it's always so much longer than I think it is. When I see it from the front, you don't realize just how long the like thruster section at the back is until they show it to you uh, when it's like standing on end. I suppose one of the things that bothered me about it is that the stamen and the orcus don't seem integrated from a design perspective. It looks like someone shoved a Gundam halfway into something else. Oh yeah, and everything about the orcus screams, we already had these lying around and we just bodged them together all the different components, the fact that it like so many of its weapons are just a weapon we already had, but it deploys out of the Orcus. Yeah, I mean, a missile barrage <laughs> is a missile barrage. And that the Orcus just like ejects a bazooka. Yeah, it does look a bit like an orchid with sort of these differently shaped masses. If you think of the stamen or, or Gundam portion as the center, and then the two big I don't even know what they're supposed to be called, but the parts that hold all the missiles on the sides and then the thrusters as uh, parts that, you know, sort of splay out. There are a lot of orchids in that general mold. I was looking at pictures of the Dendrobium specifically, 
the, the, the flower. There are a lot of different dendrobiums, so... Well, the ones that people tend to take photos of and tag as dendrobium that I was looking at tend to have six petals. Mm. That's how many weapons the Orcus has if you look at it from the front. It's got the two pods, it's got the two claws, it's got the eye field generator, and it's got the cannon. Okay. And they are arranged around the stamen in the same way that the petals on the flowers are arranged around the column. I was so ready to correct you if you said stamen instead of column. <laughs> I have thoughts on that, actually. But before we get to those, the most interesting thing about the dendrobium as a whole is that, yeah, the stamen is not really integrated into it. The stamen has to, like, reach out with its hands and grab onto a massive mobile suit-sized control stick to pull these various different pieces of weaponry around. Oh my gosh. The moment you describe it that way, it's like a light bulb lights up above my head. The Orcus is a mobile suit for a mobile suit. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. It's mobile suits all the way down. So this is the most interesting thing about it. It also reveals that probably is what it looks like. It's a bodged together collection of the various weapons that they happened to already have going at Anaheim with the most minimum of connective tissue. Anybody who had the time to do so would simply do a direct connection between the computer in the stamen to a computer in the dendrobium. You wouldn't go through this nonsense of actually having to like reach out and grab a thing. Partly because it inherently limits the dendrobium to only being able to attack with one or two weapons at a time, even though it has so many. And also because the response time is bad. Look, there's a whole bunch of problems. Right. The, the more intermediary controls you add, the longer your response time is going to be. And set up the way it is, there are the controls inside the stamen cockpit that Cole is working. But then those controls move something that moves other controls that send signals to another thing. There's this whole other layer of delay. And this is not just like us doing extra textual speculation. The first time that the Dendrobium is in battle, he's fighting like a swarm of Zakus and Doms. He tries to shoot them with a beam rifle that the stamen is holding as it flies around in the Dendrobium, and he can't hit anybody because the range of motion is limited and et cetera, et cetera. And one of the enemy pilots is like, ha, it can't do anything. It's just big. And then he annihilates them with an overkill swarm of missiles. But the point is, clearly, the way Cole fights has to adjust to the strengths and the weaknesses of the Dendrobium. I feel like they could have kept those interesting bits and also made a cool-looking thing. <laughs> oh, so you agree with me? Oh, I agree with you completely. Okay. Nice. Maybe it gets points for realism? I mean, it's... If you're into that. It's just that the Noya Zeal is cool and pretty and interesting. Oh, yeah. I did not research the Noya Zeal, so uh, I don't have much to add to that mobile suit, though I know you do. Oh, yes, I do. But that is a design I really liked. It feels like an insect. It feels like a wasp. Incidentally, wasps are a major pollinator for a lot of types of orchids. And some types of orchids even make themselves look like insects so that insects will try to mate with them. And then that's how they transfer pollen from themselves, from the column to the insect. And then it gets carried to other flowers. You're so close. What? So close to what? We'll come back to that. Okay. <laughs> Before we move on, I want to say one really nice thing about the dendrobium. Okay. 
that scene where he shoots out the the missile pod and it destroys all of the zakus and doms even as they like desperately try to avoid it and then you just see the dendrobium sailing casually through space as explosions light up the screen in every direction mmm it's so good anyway I was so caught up in all these like taxonomic issues and looking at diagrams of flowers and being frustrated that I felt like the naming scheme for the parts of the dendrobium made no sense. And Tom, with his uh, customary clarity, is like, what if they just mean penis and testicles? What if stamen is just a penis and orcus, given where its name comes from, is testicles? That these are not meant to be flower parts, they're meant to be human parts. Right, the name orchid comes from the Greek word for testicles, which is orcus. So we have this component of the dendrobium called the orchis. It might be named for the orchid genus, orchis, and we're sort of inclined in that direction because everything else has been named after flowers. But when combined with the stamen, maybe we should think that it actually refers to the part of the orchid that is named for the orchis. As I mentioned last week, a couple of my sources uh, mentioned that dendrobium represent a selfish beauty which I think is both Nina and Lucette. Both of these beautiful young women care about their progeny, care about their projects. They're not really concerned with anything else. <laughs> it's very single-minded about their goal. If the GPO-1 is this sort of chaste, innocent, pure love, then here is the dendrobium to represent sexual maturity, possibly virility, manhood, adulthood, in several different cultures, including in Chinese herbal medicine, dendrobium has been used to treat impotence. And its components are named for reproductive anatomy. So it represents Cole embracing violence, hatred, aggression, this rivalry with Gato. All traditionally masculine characteristics, masculine behaviors. And the show brings up explicitly this idea that early on, Cole while he may legally be an adult, is not yet a man. There's a whole episode about it. It's not a good episode, but there is a whole episode about that. And his willingness to steal Unit 3, his willingness to meet with Lucette under these circumstances that have a lot of like flirtatious and sexual overtones, and his changing feelings toward Gato and about the fight represent the show's vision of him becoming a man, becoming an adult. Have you considered that Cole stealing the Unit 3 is a conscious echo of Gato stealing the Unit 2? That Ko's transformation into adulthood, that his embrace of masculinity is Gato-like? I hadn't, but this ties into another point I had wanted to make when I brought up the bit about wasps and flowers. You mean when you got so close? Yes, when I got so close to whatever point it is you're going to make eventually. Uh, there is a certain homoeroticism to all of this that the embrace at the end of their fight that everybody thinks is going to end in both of their deaths and then it doesn't quite, but that embrace sort of likens violence to sex. I imagined possibly overblown metaphor of hatred being like pollen carried from one flower to the next or from one generation into the next hmm. by these fights. There is this exchange of hatred, and then the survivors take it and pass it on to more people, people who were not involved. 
that Gato has, in effect, taken the hatred he has carried ever since the one-year war and transmitted it to Cole, and now Cole will carry it, and it will color how he relates to other fighters, other soldiers. We talked about this a really, really long time ago now on the podcast, but in medieval Japan, there was a common relationship amongst warriors of a somewhat older and a somewhat younger pair of lovers, with the older one acting both as lover, but also as mentor, teacher, instructor in the ways of samurai masculinity. That is, in a way, the relationship between Ko and Gato, for all that they're on opposite sides of this conflict. Except the eroticism of it is mediated through Nina as a third party, who at various times balances or destabilizes the relationship between these two men. Where I think things get very interesting is when Cole detaches the stamen from the Orcus. I have a very poetic turn of mind, love seeing metaphors and things, and so given our theory that the stamen is a penis and the Orcus are testicles, this could be seen as emasculating, but I actually think it represents a change from the earlier metaphor we made wherein these men were competing to be fathers into a kind of masculinity that is about sexuality but not procreation. Masculinity but not fatherhood. Use but not care. About all these urges that he is experiencing in the now, but with no sense of futurity. Hmm. I see where you're going with this. Let me propose an alternative interpretation. Earlier during the talkback, we discussed how similar Cole and Gato have become at this point, but this is the one really important point of difference between the two of them, and it's represented in their respective mobile armors here at the end. Cole can leave. Cole can discard all the weapons, all the things he's picked up in the course of this conflict, and continue on. Changed, the GPO-3 is not the same as the GPO-1, but he can emerge from all of it. Gato can't. Once Gato enters the Noyazil, it's like he fuses with it. And this is part of why I think of that ending as hopeful. It does show the possibility of some different future. There's no way to know if everyone involved is going to take advantage of the opportunity. Maybe they will forever remain trapped. Maybe Ko will decide that he needs to go back to the battlefield. But there's at least the chance, which is better than anyone else has. Yeah, where there's life, there's hope, right? Mm-hmm. I'm going to keep making plant metaphors here. Gato in the Noya Zeals like a wasp pollinating figs. I don't know if this is true. I think it is. I remember hearing that every fig like grows around a dead wasp, that wasps die when they pollinate figs, and then the fruit forms pretty much around them. Gato has to die to produce the fruit that he wants, but the fruit he wants is full of seeds. Gato, to the end believes that what he is doing will somehow help future people achieve something closer to his vision, whatever that might be, that he is paving the way or inspiring the next generation, that he is sowing the seeds for some glorious future. Cole still has no sense of a future that he wants, or I think at this point, even a future past surviving the battle. <laughs> Before we move on, you complained about the stamen and how orchids don't have stamens. Orchids have a 
special structure that is a fusion of the stamen with the pistil called the column. And I want to point out that despite the name, the stamen actually is a fusion in a way that the GPO-1 was not. Oh? The stamen has no core fighter. The mm. GPO-1, using the core block system, although we don't actually see it happen, it can detach and eject a core fighter that can fly off as its own thing. The stamen doesn't. The core fighter is already fused into it. Oh, I see what you're saying. That the the structure that in other mobile suits would have been removable and separate is present in the stamen, but it's fused. It cannot separate. Exactly. Okay. Interesting. So I did do some research about the Noyazil. I have to caution that there are a couple of facts about it that are repeated everywhere, like on every fan site that talks about them. But I have not been able to find an official source or really any source at all for either of them. So take with grain of salt. The name is widely believed to come from German, Neue for new, and Zeal for a target, a goal, an aim, a project. German-speaking listeners, of course, know that that's not actually how you pronounce that German word. It's with a hard Z sound, so it's more like Ziel. But the Japanese is Jiru, sounds kind of like Zion, Jion. And so by the same process, we get from Jiru to Zeal. There's a note on like every Japanese fan blog about how the pronunciation is wrong, but just roll with it. And then the second and third points are both visual notes, and they're about the inspirations for the design. The first is that designer Akitaka Mika started with the image of the Alpha Ajiru from Char's Counterattack and worked backwards. What would a prototype for that mobile armor have looked like in 83? But the other point, and this is why I said you were so close, is it's not a wasp. It's a swallowtail butterfly. Oh, okay. And so that moment when it unfurls its additional arms and it grabs onto the dendrobium is like a butterfly landing on a flower. But because it's a butterfly, Gato goes through his metamorphosis after the Unit 2 is destroyed and he emerges from his Axis fleet cocoon, I guess, as this new thing, but it is his final form. Next time on episode 8.15, Spike Field, we research and discuss Gundam 0083 Stardust Memory, Mayfly of Space, and I suppose Shima was too cool and popular for them to leave it at that. Sasuga Franchise. We love a baddie who's a baddie. A different take, a change of style. Flashbacks and nightmares. Might as well be hanged for a sheep as for a lamb. When the past catches up to you. Old grudges and new enmity. And one last roll of the dice. The danger is still present in your time as it was in ours. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, 
within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music for this season is 80s synth rock guitar improvisation by Zombiefish. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, or by email to hosts at GundamPodcast.com. And thank you for listening. The Wrong Gundam Opinion this week is from Hit the Targets, who says that Basque and Jamatov got away with it despite those meddlesome kids on the Albion, because Ko and company didn't have a funny talking animal or robot to round out the team. But really, I wonder if they even had any meddlesome kids in the first place. Ko was never much for meddling, and he did his whole become a man shtick before the final confrontation. Moncha is meddlesome and child-ish, but the man is like 28 years old. It's obvious that the Albion's combat effectiveness would have been 10 times higher if they had just picked up a little orphan stowaway at some point. That's where they really went wrong. Professional soldiers are just for show. The Bright Noahs understand that. Click my clicky pen now. Click your clicky pen. Nina, we need clicky pen fully. There is a fan-made visual novel called Anaheim Girls Love Story about a Yuri romance between two of the Gundam designers at Anaheim. That could be difficult, (laughs) but maybe a fun challenge. Yeah. Tom, how dare you? I don't need fun challenges right now. I need need to lay in a pool with a cocktail in my hand, not having any thoughts. No thoughts head empty. (laughs) Only sunny poolside time. Who are we kidding? You are the least into vacations person I know. (laughs) Projects, they're multiplying. I have something kind of neat to tell you. Oh. Something Gundam related. Oh dear. (laughs) I can't say definitely I wasn't alive back then. As much as I hate to say those words in that order. No, she's not gonna fly off to the I want to say the end of the universe, but I don't think I can say that. They are on the edge of annihilation, plummeting towards the Earth. After the colony has passed the point of no return, in the sights of the solar system, there's every reason to believe they're going to be disintegrated any moment now, and the only thing that matters to each of them is this one last fight against their rival. Ready to be roundly criticized for my mobile suit opinions. <laughs> and the way that the flowers of these dendrobia, dendrobii, dendrobii. Do you mean? Dendrobia. I think you mean petals, not flowers, yes, you're right? right?
I believe so. Sounds right. 